In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com slash premium. It only costs five dollars a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Indeed. Attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Don't spend countless hours looking for candidates with the right skills. Start hiring now at Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer good for a limited time. Terms and conditions apply. There are three major topics that I want to discuss on today's podcast. The first one is the October CPI. That was released earlier this morning. Although it's not so much the CPI that's significant, but the incredible reaction to the CPI in the financial markets. The second topic is the midterm elections that we had on Tuesday and the results that we have so far from those elections. And then I want to discuss the latest major blow up in the crypto market, which sent the price of Bitcoin crashing below 16,000 and which should be a gigantic wake-up call for any Bitcoin holders who are still asleep and who have been missing one warning sign after another. The collapse of Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX is the biggest disaster yet in the crypto space, and it portends a significant collapse in the entire sector. So first, taking a look at the October CPI. The expectation was for a 0.7% rise 
during the month. And that would have been hotter than the 0.4% increase in the prior month. And the range of expectations was from a low of an increase of 0.5 to a high of an increase of 0.8. And we came out at 0.4. So not only lower than the 0.7% that had been forecast, but below the low end of the forecast. Now, it was the exact same number that we got the month before, but the markets didn't care about that. All the markets cared about is it was lower than they thought. And the year-over-year number, which was 8.2% in the prior month, was expected to fall to 8% in October. And instead, it fell all the way down to 7.7%. That, again, was below the lowest estimate in the consensus range, which went from a low of 7.8 to a high of 8.1. Now, stripping out the all-important food and energy, the so-called core, the expectation there was for a rise of 0.5, which would have been a little bit lighter than the 0.6 from the prior month. And instead, we only went up 0.3 again below the low end of the consensus range, which went from 0.4 to 0.7. And again, on the year-over-year core, which was supposed to come out at 6.6, which would have equaled the prior month, it fell to 6.3. Again, below the low end of the range, which was from 6.5 to 6.7. So the markets reacted immediately with a huge rally. And by the end of the day, the Dow Jones was up just over 1,200 points. That's a percentage gain of 3.7%. But that's nothing compared to what other indexes did. The S&P 500 was up 5.5% on the day. I mean, one of the best days ever, the Russell 2000 was up just over 6%. NASDAQ was up 7.5%. 3%. And many of the tech stocks in the NASDAQ had their biggest percentage gains ever. In fact, the Kathy Wood ARC Innovation ETF was among those securities experiencing its largest ever one day gain. It was up 14.5% on the day. Now, it was coming off a new low for this bear market on Wednesday when the ARC Innovation Fund was down 80% from its peak. In fact, a lot of these tech stocks hit new lows on Wednesday and then soared on Thursday in the aftermath of this better-than-expected inflation number. Now, I believe a lot of the buying was short covering. I think the shorts were scrambling to cover after this number came out, but there were probably other people who got suckered into the buying and who bought these stocks But it wasn't just stocks that the market was buying. They were buying bonds. Bond yields collapsed today. We had a surge in bond prices. Yields tumbled across the spectrum with the yield on a five-year U.S. Treasury falling back below 4%. It's now at 3.94%. The 10-year even lower than that, all the way down to 3.81%. The only long-term bond still yielding better than 4% is the 30-year Treasury, and that closed at a yield of 4.05%. But while bonds and stocks were soaring, the U.S. dollar was tanking. 
The U.S. dollar index dropped by almost 2.5%. It closed at 107.29. This was the biggest one-day drop in the dollar index since March of 2009. And that's when the dollar index topped out and began a significant decline that followed the massive rally in the dollar index that followed the 2008 financial crisis. In fact, the dollar index is now 6% below the peak that it hit back in September. And I've been talking on this podcast that I thought the dollar index had seen its highs. And it sure does look like that forecast is going to be correct. Again, I really want to see the dollar index close below 105, but I think it looks like that's going to be likely in the very near future. The opposite of the dollar, as the dollar was tanking, gold was soaring. Gold almost rose $50 again today. It was up about $49, closing at $17.56 an ounce. Now, earlier in the week, Gold rose $40 in one day on Monday, and that followed the $52 rise in the price of gold the previous Friday. And it was the Friday rise that inspired the title of my last podcast about the gold train having left the station. Well, I think the action that we've seen thus far this week proves that that also was a prescient observation. It's very rare to see a $40 or $50 move in one day up in the price of gold. Yet we've just had three of those days out of the last five trading days. That's much rarer. I can't even remember when that happened before. And I don't think that's insignificant. Something is going on when you see gold moves of that magnitude. And of course, gold stocks are also moving up. In fact, the GDXJ, that's the junior gold mining stocks, outperformed the NASDAQ, it was up 8.6% on the day. And to give you an idea of the relative outperformance between big tech and junior mining, the NASDAQ following today's 7.8% rally, the NASDAQ is 11% off its 52-week low. However, the GDXJ is now 34% off its 52-week low. You've had more than triple the gains in junior mining than you've had in the NASDAQ, yet that stealth bull market is getting no attention in the media, which as far as I'm concerned is the best aspect of this bull market is that it's taking place off of everybody's radar. And the longer this bull market is off the mainstream radar, the more progress it's going to make before average investors wake up and finally climb on board. And this is how bull markets are born. They're born in obscurity. Nobody bothers to notice until the moves are so big that they're impossible to ignore. But I want to circle back to the impetus of these massive moves in the financial markets, the October CPI, because talk about much ado about nothing. This is not good news. This does not show that the Fed is making any progress when it comes to inflation. Yes, the year-over-year number is lower than it was, 7.7, but that's still a big number. And of course, it doesn't even capture the degree to which prices are actually moving up. The real 
rate of inflation is probably double that. So we have very high inflation. Is it somewhat lower than it was at its peak? Sure, that's bound to happen. But that does not indicate that the Fed has actually made any real progress. Everything is going to ebb and flow. There is no reason to believe that at some point in the near future, we're not going to print a record high year-over-year CPI. And even if you look at the 0.4% increase during the month of October, that still annualizes to 5%. Now, people might think, well, 5% is lower than 8%. Yes, it is, but it's a far cry from the 2%, which is the Fed's goal. And nothing the Fed has done thus far is going to succeed in bringing inflation down to 2%. Even though we have 4% interest rates and the market is now convinced that the next rate hike is 50 basis points, not 75, and that the next one after that will be 25, and then the Fed will be done. That's really what the markets believe. Now, the markets are probably wrong unless there is a major implosion. But even if the Fed continues to hike rates, it'll never catch up to an inflation curve that it is miles behind. Because as I've been saying, the only real way to fight inflation is a two-pronged attack, which would include positive real interest rates, which means an interest rate above the inflation rate, and we're still at an interest rate half the official inflation rate, let alone the actual inflation rate. And we need cooperation from the U.S. government. We need to see cuts in government spending, something that's not going to happen. In fact, government spending is going to continue to increase, and so will the deficits that are making that spending possible. So negative real interest rates, is stimulative monetary policy, and increasing budget deficits is stimulative fiscal policy. You're not going to put out a fire by pouring gasoline on it. If you want to know how to fight inflation, look at what Sweden is doing. I just read about Sweden's plan to fight inflation, and it includes significant cuts to government spending, so significant that the Swedish government is going to be running a budget surplus. And their plan is to use those surpluses to pay down their national debt. And I think right now it's around 35% of GDP. And the plan is over the next few years to reduce their debt to GDP to about 28%. And because they're reducing their government debt, they're also going to be able to reduce the supply of Swedish kroner in circulation. That's how to fight inflation. We're not doing any of that. And by the way, our total government debt to GDP right now, when you include state, federal, and local, is about 135% of GDP, and it's going up. It's not coming down. So Sweden will succeed in its effort to bring down its inflation, but the Federal Reserve will fail in its feigned effort to bring down U.S. inflation. In fact, this is one of the rare occasions where I agree with Senator Bernie Sanders. I wish the United States was more like Sweden because Sweden is far more fiscally responsible than America. But getting back to the CPI itself, even if you look beneath the headlines, which very few people seem to do on the CPI number, you'll see some shocking examples of just how little progress the Fed is making on inflation. Take a look at the numbers for food at home. This is in October, right? This is the month 
where we had this great progress on inflation that was so great that the Fed's going to be able to dial back their inflation-fighting efforts. Food at home increased by 0.6% on the month, year-over-year, 10.9% increase in eating food at home. Now, eating food away from home, going to a restaurant, that was up 0.9% on the month. The year-over-year increase is 8.6%. Energy prices up 1.8% on the month, 17.6% year-over-year. Energy-related commodities up 4.4% on the month, 19.3% on the year. Gasoline of all types up 4% on the month, 17.5% on the year. And look at fuel oil, 19.8% for the month of October, year over year of 68.5%. These are numbers that are contained within this supposedly good news on CPI. You know, there are some numbers that went down. I'm looking at utilities, gas services, pipe, down 4.6% on the month. That was a big drop, but still up 20% year over year. We also had declines in commodities, less food and energy. They were down 0.4% on the month. And used cars and trucks, that was a big one. They were down 2.4% on the month. And apparel prices also dropped 0.7% on the month. And then medical care. Medical care was down 0.6%. Those are your declines. And those are the reasons you saw a drop in the headline number. But why are used car prices coming down? Because people can't afford to buy them. People are spending so much money on food. They're spending so much money on energy that they don't have as much money left over to buy a car, used or new. And so the prices are going down. But what's more important to most people than the price they pay to buy a car is the rate they pay to finance the purchase of that car. Because most Americans are too broke to pay cash for a car, they have to borrow the money. And auto loans are way up. So even though car prices are down, it costs more money to have a car because the interest rate is higher on the car loan that you have to take out to buy that car. You know, the same thing is happening with shelter costs, which, by the way, were up 0.8% on the month, 6.9% year over year. That's the biggest year over year increase ever. Part of the problem with shelter, even if home prices are going down, the cost to borrow the money to buy the home is going way up. So are the utilities to stay in the home. So is your insurance. So is your maintenance. So is your property taxes. The only thing they can give is the price of the home. But don't be deceived into thinking that falling real estate prices means that shelter costs are going down. They're not. They're going way up. And in fact, If the value of your house that you buy is falling after you buy it, that's actually another cost because now you have to throw depreciation into the mix on top of all the other stuff you're paying. By the way, I'm looking at transportation services as part of the CPI. It rose 0.8% during the month of October. That's 15.2% year over year. But if you just look down the list of all these categories, these are huge numbers. In fact, if you just look at services rather than goods, overall service prices 
during the month of October had their biggest year-over-year increase since 1982. The Fed is not making any progress at all in reducing inflation. And that's clear. And these numbers aren't going to get any better. In fact, they're going to get worse because now you have a falling dollar that is going to accelerate the increase in consumer prices. Because up until very recently, we had a strong dollar. And that was actually cushioning the blow of inflation because a lot of what we buy is imported. And a lot of those prices were held down by the strong dollar and commodities in general. Those prices were capped by the strength of the dollar. Well, now the weakness of the dollar is going to reverse all that. That is going to magnify the impact of inflation on prices. And that's another reason that prices are going to start moving up at a faster clip than they have been before, because the dollar is going down and it has a long way to fall. In fact, the reason that I believe that the markets reacted to such an insignificant consumer price index is because investors are confident that despite the insignificance of this progress, the Fed could use it as an excuse to continue the soft pivot, which is exactly what they're going to do. The Fed is going to claim falsely, but it will claim that it is making progress on inflation. And the markets will accept that. They're not going to question that excuse. It will at least pass the smell test of plausibility because most people won't dig deep enough to see what's actually going on. They want to hear what they want to hear. And so they will buy this. This is a plausible excuse for the Fed to use, especially in light of their prepared remarks before Powell went off script during that Q&A to talk about the need to step back and assess what's already been done, to consider not just the rate hikes in the future, but the cumulative effects of the rate hikes in the past, and to also consider the lags with which those rate hikes operate. And so this is the inflation report that the markets wanted, because if this report had come out hotter than expected, then there would have been no way the Fed could have dialed anything back and the markets would have tanked. But because the Fed now has a plausible excuse, the markets are buying stocks and they're buying bonds and they're dumping dollars and they're buying gold. But the reality of this report means that the Fed is in the process of pivoting, even though it's not even close to winning its fight against inflation. And it's ultimately going to do a hard pivot, even as the inflation rate accelerates and makes new highs, because the recession that we are already in is going to get much worse. In fact, before we had this big rally today, stocks were getting clobbered earlier in the week on bad earnings. Company after company was coming out with earnings misses, especially these companies that have to do with the consumer. One in particular is Affirm, which is one of those buy now, pay later companies. And I made fun of those companies when everybody first started buying into them. I went over all of the risks inherent in this business model and the lack of any barriers to entry and how competitive it could end up being. In fact, I talked about having a business model of buy now, pay never. That would really be attractive. I was thinking about that scene from There's Something About Mary with the seven-minute abs where somebody keeps undercutting you 
with a shorter workout. And I thought something like that could happen in that space. But I knew that this was a massive bubble. And a firm reported bad earnings. The stock was down 23%. In fact, it closed on Wednesday down 93% from its 52-week high. And of course, the company is going to get into even more trouble when the people who did buy now to pay later can't pay later because they don't have any money and the company is stuck with a lot of bad debt. All that's going to happen. But that stock got caught up in today's euphoria. It rose 24% off of its new low. But even after today's 24% rally, it's still 91% below its 52-week high. That's how far this stock has fallen when a move of this magnitude is so insignificant in relation to the enormity of that decline. But the market is rallying on hype. It fell on fundamentals, bad earnings in a rising inflation, rising interest rate environment, and it's rallying on nothing but hope and hype and short covering. When you're hiring for your business, you usually have to make a choice. Do you want to hire fast or do you want to hire well? But if you want to do both, then you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Why spend countless hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed? Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, Assessments, and Virtual Interviews. And if you hate waiting, Indeed's U.S. status shows that over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match their job description the moment they sponsor a job. But what I like best about Indeed is how they simplify the hiring process, letting you do all your hiring in one place. Indeed saves you time and money by helping you see your top applicants' abilities in a flash by adding any one of 135 graded assessment tests to your job post. You can select for the skills that matter most. With Indeed's assessments, you can pick from over 100 skill tests and then add them to your job post. That way you can find candidates with the right skills fast. Indeed assessments can even give you a window into how your candidates will perform on the job. On average, applicants who scored proficient plus on reliable assessments were nearly eight times more likely to constantly attend work, according to U.S. Indeed data. So join the over 3 million businesses worldwide already using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows that when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. If you need to hire, then you need Indeed. Visit Indeed.com Peter to start hiring right now. Just go to Indeed.com Peter. That's Indeed.com Peter. Terms and conditions apply. I want to move on, though, and talk about the midterm elections, because like a lot of other people, I called that completely wrong. I expected the Republicans to do much better than they ended up doing. First of all, looking at the House of Representatives, the Republicans were expected to get control of the House. It looks like that they will end up taking the House of Representatives, but by a much smaller margin than anyone expected. In fact, normally in a midterm election, the party that doesn't have the White House picks up a lot more seats in the House of Representatives than the Republicans picked up during this election. Yet things couldn't be better for the Republicans in that the economy was a disaster. And not only was the economy a disaster, 
with record high inflation and, in fact, in a stealth recession. The Democrats are calling a lot of these Republican candidates election deniers. Well, they're recession deniers. But despite the economy being in recession and President Biden's approval rating being extremely low for a president at this particular point in his term, given all of those fundamentals, it would have made a lot of sense for the electorate to be very angry and wanting to take out their frustration on the party in power, blaming the Democrats. After all, they control the White House. They control Congress. Things are a lot worse now than they were two years ago, as measured by any economic indicator you want to look at. But more importantly, the people who are living in reality are experiencing how bad things are. So I thought, well, let's throw the bums out. Let's give the Republicans a try. Can't get any worse. We might as well have a change. In fact, even Elon Musk on Twitter, who said that he had typically voted Democrat, although he was independent, he was encouraging everybody to go out and vote Republican to at least balance out the power that the Democrats had with the White House. So the Republicans seem to have everything going for them, yet they failed miserably in what should have been a red wave was barely a red drizzle. And in fact, when it comes to the United States Senate, the Republicans may end up losing a seat there because they already lost the seat they had in Pennsylvania. There was a Republican incumbent to me who retired and the lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, who is recovering, and I put that word in quotes, from a stroke, actually defeated Dr. Oz, who going into Election Day was the favorite to win that seat. And it was going to be one of the key seats that the Republicans were going to hold on to. That seat is lost. But if you look at the three remaining Senate races, Arizona and Nevada look like they're going to go to the Democrats. And so unless the Republicans can win the runoff election in January in Georgia, the Democrats will actually pick up a seat in the United States Senate and increase their margin to 51 to 49. And instead of sharing power in the Senate with the Republicans, they will control the United States Senate. The most frustrating part of the Georgia election was that there was a libertarian candidate on the ballot, Chase Oliver, who got better than 2% of the vote. Had that libertarian candidate not been on the ballot, one of the two major party candidates would have received enough votes to get 50% and there would not have been a runoff. And I think the person more likely to have received the lion's share of those votes was the Republican candidate, Herschel Walker. So I believe, but for Chase Oliver being in the race, Herschel Walker would have won that Senate seat on the initial ballot. But now, because there's going to be a runoff, I think he's probably going to lose. Now, a lot of people might think, well, if we have a runoff and there's just two candidates on the ballot instead of three, well, then a lot of those libertarians will end up voting Republican. And so Herschel Walker will win, except I don't think you're going to have the same dynamic in the runoff election because I don't think you're going to have the same people showing up to vote because now you don't have the gubernatorial race going on at the same time. 
And there are a lot of Republicans who wanted to make sure that they elected a Republican governor, which they did. But I think that Republican governor has some coattails that the Republican candidate for Senate was able to ride. But when you're only going to the ballot to vote for one person, it's a different situation. And I think under those circumstances and based on what happened with the runoffs two years ago, it's more likely that Herschel Walker will lose. And therefore, the libertarians not only would have blown the Senate for their state, but they would have tipped the balance of power to the Democrats, especially if the Republicans can manage to pick up the seat in Nevada, which they still have a shot of getting. And if they could have flipped that seat, then if they would have also won Georgia, then the Republicans would have controlled the Senate by one vote. And so here is a situation where a very small number of libertarians were able to impact not only their local race in Georgia, but the entire country because they tipped the balance of power to the Democrats, which is arguably far less libertarian than the Republicans. You see, most libertarians, not all, but the majority of libertarians, their second choice would be Republican. And that's why I always tell people, only vote your conscience if there's no consequence to doing it. For example, if you live in California, it's a waste of time to go vote Republican because the Republicans are going to lose. They don't need your vote because even with your vote, they're still going to lose. The Democrats are going to win in a landslide. So under those circumstances, sure, go to the polls and vote Libertarian because voting Republican is a complete waste because you might as well not even go because the Republicans are going to lose. But at least if you go and you register your protest vote by voting Libertarian, yes, you're sending a message, a pox on both your houses. I don't like this two-party system. I'm voting Libertarian. The same would apply if you live in a state where the Republicans are way ahead. They're going to win with or without your vote. Okay, under those circumstances, you can also vote Libertarian, sending the Republicans a message. Hey, you guys are big spenders and you don't cut any government spending. And I want a more Libertarian Republican Party. And so I'm going to withhold my vote. I'm voting for the Libertarian, and that might send a message to the Republicans. Hey, you can get extra votes if you move in this direction. But I've always said that if you live in a swing state, if the election is close where your vote may in fact make a difference, well, then you have to hold your nose and you have to vote for the lesser of the two evils, in which case that's normally the Republican. And that's what these Georgia libertarians should have done. They should have voted Republican. Instead, they voted Libertarian. And so they ended up with the least Libertarian candidate on the ballot. Now, there's a lot of Wednesday morning quarterbacks that want to talk about what went wrong on Tuesday and figure out who's to blame for the Republicans not doing as well as everybody thought. And everybody's favorite pinata is former President Donald Trump, people want to blame him for the fact that a lot of these Trumpian candidates that were endorsed by Donald Trump and they won in the primary, they ended up losing in the general election. And maybe if the Republican candidates were a little bit more mainstream, they would have won. Or maybe 
because Donald Trump is such a polarizing figure, people either love him or they hate him, that even though some people are drawn to the polls to support a Trump candidate, other people are drawn to the polls to vote against a Trump candidate. And I believe there was something to that in that I do think there is an anti-Trump vote out there that may in fact be greater than the pro-Trump vote in some of these close elections. But I think there's a lot more to it than that. What I think is happening now in the U.S. electorate, it has been so dumbed down to the point that the typical voter is really clueless as to the source of the problems. And even though the economy is lousy and Democratic leaders are unpopular, when the economy is bad, a lot of people are voting for whichever party they believe will give them the most free stuff. After all, times are bad. I need stuff. I need stuff from government. People don't look at government as the source of their problems. They still think government is the solution to their problems. And the Democrats always have the better solution as far as most voters are concerned because the Democrats are promising to give you stuff. The Republicans are promising something that's a little bit harder to grasp. They're promising to get out of the way. They're promising more freedom so that you are better able to help yourself, whereas the Democrats are just promising more money, more stuff from government. And most voters don't recognize the fact that the reason they're in so much trouble is because they have so much government. It's government programs, regulation, and taxation that have created the problem, but they don't understand that. They just look at government as the solution. Harry Brown said it best, and I think it was Harry Brown that said it originally, unless he was quoting somebody else. I always think of Harry Brown, who was twice the libertarian candidate for president. He's no longer alive, of course, if you're not familiar with Harry Brown. But one of his sayings was, the government is great at breaking your leg and then handing you a crutch and saying, you see, without me, you couldn't walk. You have all these crippled voters that don't realize that it's the government that crippled them, but the government is standing there with what they think is a crutch. And so they're voting to receive this crutch. And I think that's what's going on. As bad as things are, the electorate is now so far to the left that they're going to vote for the Democrats anyway. And I think that may have been a bigger factor than just Donald Trump pick candidates, that even if these were more mainstream Republican candidates, they still may have lost because it's hard to outvote the people who are voting for free stuff. That is the problem. And the more people who are riding in the government wagon the harder it is for the people who are pulling that wagon to outvote the people who are riding in the wagon. But I want to finish up the podcast by talking about yesterday's implosion of the Sam Bankman-Fried crypto empire. He has three companies, Alameda Research, FTX, and FTX USA. And this guy was considered the leader of the entire crypto blockchain ecosystem. He was supposedly the richest of the rich. I think his net worth was estimated at close to $20 billion. He was all of 
30 years old. In fact, I watched an interview that CNBC conducted with this guy less than two months ago, and the woman who interviewed him was gushing all over him like a schoolgirl with a crush, and she was completely enamored by this guy. And to me, I'm looking at this kid who not only needed a haircut, but he needed to comb his hair. And the guy was dressed like a complete slob, you know, especially when he was sitting for an interview for television. I mean, I can see if he's home by himself, maybe that's what he's wearing, but you're going to be on television. It's an interview. I mean, come on. And just listening to him talk, I immediately started thinking that this is weird, that something's off with this guy. And the fact that he was supposed to be the leader of crypto it would not have inspired much confidence in me. I mean, they refer to this guy as the JP Morgan of crypto. And one of the reasons for that is he's been throwing around a lot of money. He's been bailing out a lot of other companies that were in trouble, BlockFi, Voyager Digital, Celsius. One company after another was blowing up, and then he was riding to the rescue. He even bought a 7.5% stake in Robinhood and helped prop up that stock that was tanking. He became a major shareholder in Anthony Scaramucci's Highbridge Capital. In fact, he was a major political donor, one of the biggest donors to the Democratic Party. So he's thrown around all this money and everybody is worshiping this guy. And now it turned out that the whole empire was, in fact, a house of cards. In fact, it's likely just another giant Ponzi scheme, just like Celsius, just like what blew up with Terra Luna. This is a major catastrophe, probably the biggest catastrophe to hit the crypto industry. I think the fallout that we've seen thus far is just the tip of an iceberg. So much money is about to be lost or already was lost by so many people. They just don't realize how much money they lost. There's a lot of leverage. There's going to be a lot of forced liquidation. This whole thing is going to cascade. And for a while yesterday, the rumors were that Binance, which was a major competitor of FTX, was going to buy FTX in a bailout, which, of course, was very ironic because it was Sam Bankman-Fried through his various enterprises that had been the savior of so many other failing cryptos. Now his own company itself needed to be bailed out by a competitor. But then later that evening, Binance announced that after reviewing the situation and in light of the government investigations and who knows, likely criminal charges that could end up being filed, they wanted no part of the transaction and backed out. And in addition to being an exchange, FTX also had its own token. And those tokens were trading for about $25, $26 per token before the news broke. They crashed all the way down to about $2. Now, as I'm recording the podcast today, they've recovered back up to about $3.40, but still a fraction of where they were. As a matter of fact, the all-time high for these tokens was set in September of 2021 at about $71 a piece. At that point, the market cap of these tokens was close to $10 billion. As I'm recording this podcast, even with today's huge rally percentage-wise, the market cap has only recovered to about $450 million, so you're still talking about a 94% decline from its peak. Ultimately, these tokens are going to zero out, 
but even a dead cat will bounce when you drop it from the top of a tall building. And that's exactly what's happening with these FTX tokens. And the only reason we didn't see continued carnage in the crypto market today was the boost that Bitcoin got from the CPI and Bitcoin rose with all the other risk assets because people have been conditioned to buy Bitcoin on this type of news because the narrative has been that when the Fed pivots, Bitcoin's going to moon. And so anything that indicates that the Fed is closer to a pivot inspires buying in Bitcoin, except by now it should be obvious that none of that matters to Bitcoin because what's happening now is far more significant. Bitcoin is not an inflation hedge. It's not digital gold. The whole thing is a fraud. Just like all these other crypto companies are Ponzi schemes, the whole thing is one giant Ponzi. It is literally a blockchain letter, a pyramid scheme. None of these things are going to work. They are all going to implode. And the institutions that dip their toe in the water now are dealing with a frozen toe, and they're glad that they never took the complete plunge. This whole thing is imploding. Looking at shares of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which hit a new 52-week low yesterday, it had dropped 84% from its high. But more significantly, the discount to NAV sank all the way down to 42%, another all-time record low indicating institutions have zero appetite for Bitcoin. There is no mass adoption. Right now, the only thing you have is mass liquidation. Sure, you still have the diehard fanatics that are hodling, but all the other money that helped drive Bitcoin up to 70,000 a year ago, and it's almost a full year since Bitcoin hit its near 70,000 high, and yesterday it almost broke below 15,000, As I am recording the podcast right now, Bitcoin's around 17,500. It bounced again today, but this bounce is another sucker rally. We're going to hit new lows because there's so much selling still pent up, which is going to be the fallout from the collapse of FTX, Alameda Research. Remember, this was one of the companies that bought one of those commercials on the last Super Bowl. In fact, this is the company that was highly touted by Tom Brady. He's been their main spokesman, including his ex-wife, Giselle Bundchen, also a big spokesman for the company. Remember, Larry David was in that commercial on the Super Bowl where he was shown as being the guy that was opposed to every major invention, going all the way back to the wheel, electricity, the toilet bowl, whatever, every major innovation Larry David said it wouldn't work. And then, of course, he said the same thing about FTX. The implication being FTX was just the latest thing that he was wrong about. Well, it turned out that that was the one thing he got right. So Sam Bankman-Fried was the king of crypto and FTX was the jewel in his crown. And it's a complete failure. It's a complete fraud. I can't think of a better wake-up call than what just happened. If you didn't wake up, as a result of Terra Luna, or if you didn't rake up as a result of Celsius, how could you sleep through this? Nobody can. This, I think, is the nail in the crypto coffin. The rest of the air is going to be coming out of this bubble. We have yet to see the real crash. That is coming. Yes, Bitcoin dropped about 25% 
from where it was on Friday at the high to where it was on Wednesday on the low. And I warned about that in my last podcast that I did after the big rally on Friday where gold was up 3% and Bitcoin was up 4%. And a lot of people were making fun of gold because it didn't go up as much as Bitcoin. I was saying on that podcast, yeah, but gold could build on its gains and Bitcoin is going to lose its gains. Well, boy, did it lose its gains. It lost all of its gains and then some. And even with the rally today, it's still close to 20% below where it was on Friday. But the real liquidation has yet to come. Wait till the government really peaks inside what was going on. There's going to be a lot more regulation now on the entire industry. This is like a Bernie Madoff moment. This is not going to be ignored. And imagine how all these transactions might have to be unwound to claw back the money to pay off creditors because Bankman Freed was spreading all this money around. If he embezzled it from his companies, then they've got to unwind the Robinhood transaction. They've got to unwind the Skybridge transaction. A lot of this money has to go back. In fact, what about all those campaign donations? Maybe the Democrats have to give back the money because if he was donating money he embezzled, he had no right to donate it. And therefore, the candidates have no right to keep the donations. They have to give them back. Ponzi schemes always work great right up until the moment when people want their money back. This thing is a gigantic mess, but it is going to play out like a tragedy through the entire crypto space. It's amazing to me how many people are still oblivious to what is going on. Well, if you won't wake up as a result of this, then there's no helping you. If you can't read the writing on this wall, then you are blind. And if you go down with this ship and you lose all of your money in Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency, you've got nobody to blame but yourself.